You can also make a secure contribution online at www.weru.org. Your financial support pays for training and equipment used by local volunteer reporters and program hosts on this station and helps to support the acquisition of vital national programs as well. Call 1-800-643-6273 and pledge your support for the station that really knows that all things are connected. WERU. And it is WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill and all over the place at WERU.org. Stand by for Let's Talk Animals. But meanwhile, don't forget that right now until tomorrow at 4 o'clock, your donations are being matched dollar for dollar. 469-6600. Let's Talk Animals. Good afternoon. This is Dr. John Hunt for... Let's Talk Animals, from aardvarks to zebras. And we're here at our new time at 4 o'clock. And I always want to plug my Sunday morning show, uh, Pet Sounds, at 7.30 in the morning on Sunday mornings, two to three minutes short. I pre-record. I'm still doing that, so please tune in on Sunday mornings. But today, uh, our our topic is kind of timely. It's uh, on biosecurity. It's not going to be, we're not going to be talking about coronavirus, uh, but even though coronavirus is in the news a lot, uh, the other diseases that attack our animals, they don't, uh, they don't stop. They keep coming. So we need to be uh, very diligent about protecting our animals. And today for the second time on my show, I have the pleasure of having Dr. Ann Lichtenwalner from the University of Maine. She's Associate Professor of Animal and Veterinary Science and a Director of the University of Maine Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. Good afternoon, Ann. Well, good afternoon. Thank you for having me back. Well, thank, appreciate it. Thank you for coming back. Um, I saw you at a meeting in, in Portland and I wanted to talk to you, but you were busy chatting with uh, a lot of your um, interested parties about uh, actually a little bit about biosecurities. That's what got my attention, and I wanted to contact you again, so thank you. That's great. Happy to be here. Very good. So, again, this is a very complex um, topic, the biosecurity, Uh, so we're going to try to keep it uh, relevant to our listeners. And uh, I guess the first thing is just uh, if you could just uh, tell us exactly the definition of biosecurity with regard to our animals. Sure. Um, Well, you know, I, I, the the term biosecurity is is kind of confusing and odd, and I I don't I like to make it um, much more approachable, um, and it is it is basically ways that make sense um, to protect ourselves and our animals from disease, and even to protect our our whole farm or our home from invasions of disease. Um, we uh, we like to think of it as um, it you know kind of a way of creating a gap between yourself and disease or between your animals and disease. And while there are you know enormous um, differences between disease agents and that sort of thing, and and it's great to know a lot of details about those disease agents so that you can fine tune how you protect yourself and your animals against disease. Nevertheless, there's some real basic things that all of us can integrate into our lives, and we don't have to be specialists to understand some of these basics. 
just a matter of having it become part of the life on the farm, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, you know, trying to keep track of finances. You can you can really be quite detailed, but you can also do some pretty simplistic approaches to it and just kind of be aware of things and, you know, be prudent about how you do things. And that's how I like to think about it. Um, so basically, there, you know, kind of like three ideas uh, are to keep things a little bit isolated. Um, so to create a gap between yourselves or your animals and disease, um, to work with natural resistance against disease, and that you can also work with um, kind of, uh, I don't know, engineered resistance against disease. There's several different ways to do that, too. Um, and then finally, uh, sanitation, uh, just hygiene, um, is a phenomenal um you know, wonderful tool uh, to prevent disease. Um, so let's go a little bit of, uh, with that. Let's go point by point isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, there are different ways of, I mean, people think isolation is to take their animal and put them far away someplace alone, and that isn't what we mean. Um, quarantine is, is uh, certain forms of quarantine and who do you separate when? So let's talk about a small farm um, that you want to keep safe. So using isolation as part of our way of biosecurity, um, what can a farmer? Sure. Yeah. What well, can so we do? yeah, with the idea of putting it on the farm, the small farm. Um, so I think uh, I think one thing is um, to envision your farm and I I like to tell people like in workshops and that sort of thing I like to tell people to consider that you are in the air way above your farm looking down on it and and one way that we have of doing that these days is Google Maps or that sort of thing aerial imaging to look at your farm and then and then kind of analyze that you know like what if you wanted to keep a new group of animals, say, separate from your other animals before you introduce them into your farm. And you do this because you just want to make sure they're not shedding any diseases. Um, remember that if you go and buy animals and then and then haul them over to your farm, it's actually pretty stressful for the animals, um, no matter what age they are, to make that change. And so that's kind of a good thing in a way, because if they are carrying a disease that they're not shedding, they're not showing you yet, and yet they're carrying it, it might make them break with that disease. And why am I saying that's good? Well, just because you better know about it. And if you find out about it in the first two weeks that you have the animals and they're quarantined away from the other animals, then that contains the disease. So now, you know, if you brought in, you know, you bought a couple new ewes and you quarantined them for a couple of weeks and they broke with some respiratory disease during that time frame, hey, that's great because you did not uh, you did not introduce it to the rest of your flock and get a, a bunch of sick animals. So that's kind of how it works, that isolation idea. Before you bring animals into your flock or your herd, that you would allow some time to go by so they could break with disease and you can deal with that and kind of contain it. Another way it works is that um, if you have an animal in your in your home flock um, that becomes ill, then you can take that animal out of its group 
and isolated in a similar kind of place um, with the idea that it's not going to spread around to the other animals. So you're isolating the, the animal, but you're also isolating the disease. Um, but don't these pens, they can't be adjacent to your regular pens. In other words, there can't be a nose-to-nose contact, right? Absolutely I mean, you right. need to be physically, I mean, how, how far apart? So a pen 10 feet away, 100 feet well, away? Because some when, farms are small. They don't have a lot of room. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, think about how hard an animal can sneeze. <laughs> 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 or, 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 or how manure might get kicked around. That sort of thing. You know, think about... It, you know, the things that are real around your farm. So two feet, probably not a great idea. Ten feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, now we're talking. And the other thing is try not to bring sick animals into the house or into direct contact with your family. And the reason I say this is just there are some of the animals' diseases, not all, but some of them that we can get. And, uh, and there are a few that we're finding out we can spread to the animals. And so, you know, you again, keeping that little gap, you know, some isolation, some barrier um, is not a bad idea. Um, so I know a couple of years ago, I think it's actually just over a year ago, that there was um, a national outbreak of a form of salmonella well, actually, there were several forms of salmonella, not the kind that comes in the egg, but rather several other forms of salmonella. People were quite ill, and um, and the CDC, the Center for Disease Control nationally, was pretty upset about this because people were getting these forms of salmonella from handling live poultry. So that, um, you know, and we all, we all I, I think people should handle their poultry, frankly. It's important so that you know what their body condition score is. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I see it's part of a normal part of having birds, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't have them up in your face and you should wash your hands after handling poultry, realizing that it's pretty common for birds to be shedding some salmonella and they don't get sick from it, but you could, if that makes sense. So if someone, if there's a quarantine pen, whether it's a, sheep or birds, uh, the people attending to those, the family members, mm-hmm. uh, you would think that they would probably wear some kind of a protective garment and just and use separate um, shovels and food bins. And then when, they, when they're finished with taking care of them, make sure they've shed the overalls and the boots or cleaned them and wash their hands so they Absolutely don't come right. into the house with anything. And sometimes people, you know, a lot of folks will have uh, barn clothes, right? You don't wear the barn clothes into the kitchen. (laughs) Right. You know, you have a spot where they go, and then you make sure that you wash your hands. In in many main homes, um, there is a mudroom. You know, and a mudroom is a terrific thing, especially if it's got a washer and dryer in it. Exactly. (laughs) But, you know, even if it doesn't, it could have a bin that you could put your, your... barn clothes into and 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 a place where you put your barn boots and then you you know you change out of them and you wash your hands so the mudroom is a is really a well-known well-used um way of of a gap i, I, I love that term gap absolutely yeah it's it's a really good good way and I, I grew up on the west coast we didn't have that kind of thing but then 
you know, what did we know? So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to make a comment about West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, but also know. when you're buying animals mm-hmm. uh, to bring into your farm, uh, which is very common, um, you you could bring yourself, if you're careless, you could bring in a disease yourself, not just the animals. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we have a lot of diseases that hop around between people and animals. Staph aureus, that's a, a staphylococcus is a bacteria that is extremely common on skin surfaces. And sometimes it gets into respiratory passages and lungs even. It gets into the mammary glands of cows. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a problem, especially when it becomes resistant to antibiotics. And that's on a national level, well, on an international level, that's happening more often. So we shouldn't be terribly frightened about these things, but we should be quite aware that, you know, just as simple a thing as hand washing and, you know, being careful where you put your hands, but also just, you know, touching your face less often, things like that. But hand washing is a, is a big uh, big positive step. It's not fancy, but it works, and it's cheap and readily available, which is you know, that's in that sanitation um, category. But I, if I could, I'd like to talk a little bit about the resistance part. Sure. That second step. Um, because, um, you know, when we talk about disease, um, I like to think of disease agents or pathogens as being kind of these bad actors. You know, we have, we are surrounded by, and we inclu- and we contain innumerable numbers of microorganisms and they may be viruses they may be bacteria they may be protozoa or prions i mean all kinds of little microscopic creatures um, many of whom many of whom are entirely helpful and in fact we need to have certain um, combinations of them in our gi tract on our skin and various and sundry places they replenish themselves as time goes on, and they maintain a, a positive um, influence on our health and our physiology. Um, and when they go, get out of whack, then we have problems like Clostridium difficile, which is a, is a bacterium and, a bacter- and produces a bacterial toxin that makes people extremely ill sometimes after they've been in the hospital or been on antibiotics for a long time. And, uh, and, and that problem is not, I mean, that, that's not a great organism, but that organism's around normally, but just in smaller numbers. It's outcompeted by these normal flora that are happily living in our gut and on our skin and other places. So, so we don't want to wipe out microbes. Not all viruses are bad. Not all bacteria are bad. And even not all our pro- protozoa are bad, but you have to have them in balance. And one of the things that keeps them in balance is your um, innate and uh, and acquired immune responses? So, and they um, they're basically generated by not just your immune system, but also your skin. And the fact that all your secretions go out, not in, that flow is actually part of your innate immune system mm-hmm. that helps keep you healthy and keeps the bad actors out. Um, so. You know, we're fighting bacteria, viruses, et cetera, all the time without vaccines or antibiotics. 
sometimes we need vaccines or antibiotics in special situations, but we we have to be cagey and careful about how we do that, or we run a risk of actually challenging our, our health. And that's true for probiotics as well. We, we tend to believe in probiotics and like them and to think that they're all safe. But again, we can outcompete our good microbial flora and actually create dysbiosis or you know an imbalance in our gut sometimes with the overuse of probiotics. I see this in um, I see this in birds a lot in in poultry when people out of the goodness of their heart they have a sick bird and they think I'll just give it lots of yogurt or a fancy or probiotic product and sometimes they actually cause in enormous dysbiosis in the bird and the bird gets quite ill. So anyway, so, so, that, so some of the good yeah. uh, gut biomes can overgrow and cause a problem. Yeah, you can. So you too can, much of a good thing can be bad too. Yep, because that's, that's true. That's yeah. new, that's kind of new in human uh, medicine, not medicine, human health. Sure, this gut biome is a huge uh, area of research. It's a fantastic it's, area of research. We we're lucky enough here at UMaine. We've got a new faculty member, Sue Ishak, and she's really creative and interesting and she's um that's what she studies is the microbiome of uh, actually ruminant animals but also she's done work in the microbiome of the human environment it's really interesting work um and but they're professing um that the biome is and rightly so we've kind of known this a little bit that a good biome is a healthy gives you a, a healthier body less um leaky gut less inflammation that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's like the ecology of the gut. <laughs> uh, well, really, the ecology of the body itself is a new area. You know, it's, we're kind of in that area. We're kind of where we were way back in the, I don't know, you know, 50s and 60s, trying to talk about the ecology of the environment, you right. know. So anyway, it's pretty, it's exciting. So getting um, back to the resistance and how that's yeah. related to resistance. Mm-hmm. So you're, what you're saying so far is that the uh, a healthy gut, mm-hmm. you don't want to be you don't want to over supplement, but a healthy gut is a main uh, feature in a in a healthy animal to resist Huge. bad yeah. actors. So what other? So diet would play a role in that resistance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're thinking of the same thing. That nutrition was the next thing on my list. So. Um, so good, adequate nutrition, and that means, you know, minerals, vitamins, calories, um, amino acid balance, things like that. Again, we can get very detailed, um, and people spend their lives studying that, and they should. Um, or we can do things like try to, try to feed our animals feeds that are balanced for the age and stage of that particular type of animal. Uh, in my work running the diagnostic lab here, um, I work with a lot of different kinds of animals. I, I, I was telling, I, one of my favorite stories is there was one day a few years ago when I was doing necropsy and I did, I had to try to diagnose a, a baby buffalo, um, a wild turkey, and a chinchilla all in the same <laughs> day. <laughs> aren't too many vets who can say that. No, no um, I don't think yeah. anyone could. <laughs> But, but but the reason I bring it up is just each one of those animals has specific nutritional needs. Um, and so 
as owners, we, we really owe it to our animals to try to be well informed about what's, what's right for that kind of animal and to try to follow those, uh, those guidelines. Um, we have, we have needs here, uh, and this is true on the, in the coastal areas of the United States, um, that selenium, for instance, is, is somewhat low um, in feeds that derive from here, including our, our pastures. And so uh, copper, too, for a lot of ruminants is a little bit limiting here. And so it's not a bad idea to, to think about mineral supplementation for animals, you know, that are here Um sort of try to make sure that their immune system works right. We're just kind of, for any listeners who have just come in, uh, we're actually talking about biosecurity. We're actually t- talking about protecting our farm animals, whether it's poultry or livestock, from invading uh, bad characters, as you call them, which I love that term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one way is to have your animals on the farm healthy and resistant to any bad actors and one of them is the diet and a good a good gut biome um, another would be the environment itself right the environment of the farm you bet yeah in terms of cleaning and protecting the animals from wind and rain is there anything more you could can add to that in terms of the environment as a form of resistance to help sure. resistance you know, you mentioned wind and rain, and that shelter is really critically important. But I find it's, it's counterintuitive, but one of the things that we sometimes do wrong here um, in the kind of winters that we have is we don't have enough ventilation for our animals. Mm. We, get, we get concerned about the cold, and we should be. We have some fierce cold here. Oftentimes our cold is dry, not like right now. It's pretty wet right now, but oftentimes (laughs) our cold is dry, which is easier for uh, animals to tolerate. Um, And we work work with uh, youth groups sometimes on poultry um, and poultry care. And uh, talking about ventilation um, in the winter, um, I always remind them that, you know, your bird is wearing a down jacket. So don't forget that. And um, and when they have some dry bedding and not too much air coming through in that we don't want them to have winds coming through. Breezes are a bad a bad thing. But but to have plenty of ventilation present is really critically important. If you if you get down to the level of the bird, kind of squat down so that you're where the bird is spending its time, you know, near the bedding. And if you can smell ammonia, you've got a problem. Okay. So, yeah. you know, we all, we do use deep bedding oftentimes here in, in Maine and I think in other cold areas of the country as well. And deep bedding is where you just, you let, instead of cleaning out the bedding frequently, you let it build up. You want to keep a layer of pretty clean bedding on the top if you can. So periodically refresh the bedding. But the other thing is you want to take, um, I, I use a, a manure fork for this, so it's like a, um, it's, it's kind of like a hay fork, only a little sturdier, and it has tines. And I, I poke it down through, I kind of break up the bedding a little bit in order to bring oxygen down into the deeper layers. And that allows this to compost in place 
which is a good thing to reduce um, any bad actors or pathogens in the manure. Because, and, of, because of the heat? Yeah, and okay. releases a little heat, absolutely. Okay. And um, and then we have, and, and then when you go to clean out your chicken coop in the spring, instead of having big slabs of frozen manure <laughs> down under the bedding, yeah. you, you actually have something that's much closer to an actual compost. So, so also ventilation, is there a problem with humidity? Humid air, isn't that, isn't that a vehicle for pathogens? Absolutely right. And uh, in not just the air, but also the wet bedding. Wet bedding is a real problem. Um, we find that birds are much more likely to have a serious problem with cocci- coccidiosis, which is a protozoan gut parasite of birds, if the bedding is wet. And especially with your young chicks, you want to pay careful attention that you don't allow wet bedding to build up and just you know, be sure you cl- clean that out. Don't let chicks be raised on wet bedding. But even in older birds, that uh, I know there are there are producers who sometimes have big problems with coccidia in their adult birds. And while that may have something to do with the type of coccidia and also the genetics of the birds with which they're dealing, it also may have a lot to do with hygiene. And so. You know, when you know that you have a problem on your farm, then you might want to do a lot tighter control of your bedding. So the bedding uh, can still be a problem even in a seemingly well-ventilated area because if it's wet and the chickens sit on it for a long time, it kind of warms it up or it could be confusing to some people. I think, oh, my my chicken coop is well-ventilated. I still have this problem. So, yeah, yeah. You may you may have too many birds for uh, the area, yeah. okay. and that's sometimes a problem. Um, so you know you need you need at least you know two to four square feet per bird um, in a housing setting when they're inside. Um, it's nice it, it, as as people always remind me, and I th- and they are absolutely right. The more room, the fewer parasites. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's yeah. really. I mean, and that's with grazing animals or horses or or chickens. You know. And these it's, principles are the same whether it's birds or sheep or horses or I mean it's just the idea of well ventilated but not breezy. Mm-hmm. Well ventilated dry is gonna mm-hmm. again keep your animals healthy, which is a form of biosecurity. Absolutely. Keeping the keeping the gap. Yep. Well how about vaccines as a way of resistance? Sure. Um some people well, my, don't like vaccines. I know, I know. There's a, a lot of a lot of talk about that right now and um I think I am... Um, it's it's kind of like everything I've been saying. One can one can get into the, dig into the details, and it's worth doing with a lot of things. Um, but you can become overwhelmed by the details as well. I think that in general, there are some vaccines that are tried and true. They are effective. They're worth uh, the expenditure, and they are not likely to cause disease. But there aren't any perfect vaccines. So um, so I have, for a number of years, been telling people the two vaccines that make sense in Maine uh, for backyard flocks are Merrick's disease vaccine and coccidia vaccine. But I'm not always right about those things. Um, I think that 
we have to realize that vaccines that are live viruses may stay on the landscape a long time. They may be intermittently shed by otherwise healthy-seeming birds. Um, and in some cases, if it's a herpes virus or one of the other viruses that tends to be more environmentally stable, such as Merrick's disease, then they may those viruses may hang around an area or farm even if birds are gone. Uh, so it's, you know, in some ways... It makes a lot of sense to get vaccinated for Merrick's disease if your birds are going to be here on the landscape in Maine, where we've always had a big poultry industry, or not always, but, you know, for a long time, there was right, a big right. poultry industry here. And a lot of those birds were vaccinated for a lot of things. Uh, so there are some of these vaccine strains on the landscape. So the Merrick's disease vaccine will provide some protection, but it's not perfect. And in some cases, I think that sometimes there have been some strains of Merrick's disease that may have derived from vaccine strains, changed a little, and caused some real problems. So I, so I have to just say I'm, I'm still, I think if somebody were just starting out and they were trying to decide what to do and they didn't know, you know, what the history was of their farm or their area in terms of other poultry being around, that maybe it would make sense to go ahead and get them vaccinated for Merrick's disease, because we do have Merrick's, clinical Merrick's disease around in Maine. Um, the other one is, um, is coccidia, and the reason I mention that is just, um, it is available, it's one of the two, you know, the Merrick's disease vaccine and the coccidia vaccine are both uh, oftentimes available from um, poultry uh, hatcheries when you order from some of the big hatcheries um, and it can help but again when you vaccinate for coccidia you're actually giving the birds a low dose of a relatively non-pathogenic strain of coccidia so you know you're actually introducing some coccidia right. into the situation so, so there's a uh, chance of shedding I'm sorry? Shedding, shedding the, the coxidia yes. from the vaccine. Yes, right. They is may that... shed, right. And so if you have birds around, and, and well, this is another, there's sort of a caveat that goes with vaccination, and that is either vaccinate them all or don't vaccinate any of them. Okay, you yeah. don't You don't yeah. want to mix vaccinated birds with unvaccinated birds. And this is another thing about introducing new animals into your flock. You start mixing birds with really different backgrounds, um, there may be some issues around health. So um, it's not something that backyard owners can always do because they may have inherited some birds or a, a friend's flock suddenly is up for grabs or they need to be they need to rehome some birds and things like that. So you end up with these very, very mixed groups, which is not optimal for health. But in in situations where people are raising birds commercially, say, they're pretty serious about what they're doing and want to make some money and they don't want anything to go wrong, they are usually going to do what we call all-in, all-out. So that means that you buy a flock or you, or you buy a bunch of hatching eggs or whatever you do, but you bring in a bunch of birds at the same time into a clean environment 
you raise the birds to get what you're going to get from them, whether it be eggs or meat or, you know, or whatever, and then you depopulate. So they all get sold or, or you know, they all get used for meat or whatever happens, but it all happens at once. And then you clean and disinfect the area where the birds are kept. So you make sure that no pathogens, none of those bad actors are going to survive. And there are ways of doing that. And if you're serious about that and want to learn more, I'm happy to provide more information. You can reach me at the University of Maine. Um, but anyway, that's one way of doing it. So that leads us to our third part of the biosecurity is, is sanitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole idea, because you have some of these bad actors that can hang out for a long time mm-hmm. and hide as well mm-hmm. in little areas, little crevices and, and wood, things like that. So you know, what do you, what kind of advice do you give, whether it's a poultry or pig or doesn't matter what kind of farm it is, uh, some general concepts of sanitation? Sure. In regards to um, disinfection, um, again, I, I like to keep it simple. Um, and you start by not having any animals there. You know, that's first one of the first things is you've got to make sure that nobody's there. Because even your favorite one, <laughs> this is the hardest thing for farmers, is not, ha- not keeping any of their favorite animals. Um, but, you know, the idea is that nobody's there. And then you do a dry cleaning, we call it, so that you, you actually physically remove dust, dirt, manure, old bedding, all of the things. And it's easy to imagine this, and I'm going to kind of use the example of uh, on a poultry farm. Um, so people will go in and they will, they will um, first, you know, shovel away and scrape away, uh, and then they will even use um, those Uh, you know, blowers or a broom or something like that so that you actually get the dust away. Once you've done all of the dry cleaning, then you do what we call wet cleaning where you actually use, um, you know, something that's essentially a soap or a detergent. Um, So you want to wash down all of those surfaces. Then you got to let that dry for a while because some pathogens, some of the bad actors like salmonella can, 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 survive for a while in puddles, which is not a good thing. So you want to let that dry. And then you can treat it with a disinfectant if you feel that you should do that. There's some available. I'm, I'm kind of a fan of dilute bleach as long as you're really careful about protecting any kind of things that might corrode from the bleach. And also, of course, your own air passages and eyes and, and scan things like and that. Everything. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got to be careful. Yeah, but, um, but that's an old standby, though. That, it is an old standby. It's, it's cheap, cheap and readily yeah. available, and it breaks down pretty well, and yeah. it doesn't, It doesn't. yeah, it doesn't have a long residue, and it doesn't, you know, if you're careful about runoff, um, it shouldn't cause environmental damage. So it's just, you want to use just the right amount of whatever disinfectant that you use. And sometimes you don't need the disinfectant sometimes, just the cleaning. I mean, soap is a wonderful thing, and it disrupts lots of organisms. So, um, but drying is another thing. And then I always tell people, if you can afford to leave the area open for a while, that just time and sunlight and drying are really good disinfective agents as well. Even for surfaces that are hard to disinfect? 
like like uh, like wood and that kind of thing. Oh, I know, I know. We, you know, there's honestly, a lot of wood in farms. There is, yeah. And I um, actually a few years ago I did a big project on a disease of sheep called Caseus lymphadenitis or CL. That causes abscess. It's a bacterial disease that causes abscesses in sheep and. They around their face and neck are, are the most likely places that they break with these big, ugly, dry abscesses. Um, but you know, you can imagine a sheep or goat if there's something itchy and it's kind of painful around its face. Best place to rub your face to make that go away would probably be a wooden feeder, and then you your abscess breaks and there's this very infective gross stuff on the feeder, and now another animal comes along and gets a splinter loaded with this bug and that's how it gets passed around wow yeah so so i told people uh, said you know there it's not an easy disease to wipe out once it's in your flock it's very hard to eradicate um and uh it's been a problem on some farms but one of the things i tell people is hey could you please just invest in some you know pvc pipe yeah, makes good feeders you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah just get rid of those old wooden feeders please yeah um but you can it looks also, it looks quaint, but they, they're, yeah, they're, they're yeah they're quaint. Um, that's true, but you know, it's not helpful. And you can't wash and disinfect wood very well. If you paint it, though, right, it's, it it you got a a fighting chance. Um, so anyway, those are just some some thoughts about that. Um, the the other thing is rodents. Oy. Yeah, so I was going to ask about that, but oh, just want to <laughs> say this is Doctor John Hunt for. Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Uh, we are Pledge Week, and if you'd like to call 469-6600, I think Ed is on is waiting, uh, please call for make some pledges to, to, to show that you like this program. Uh, and I'm talking with Dr. Ann Lichtenwalner from the University of Maine, Associate Professor of Vet Science, Veterinary Science, and Director of the Diagnostic Lab. We're talking about biosecurity. And just a, a quick review uh, the three th- three big um, uh, things to think about biosecurity is isolation of sick animals, uh, resistance in terms of good diet, vaccines, good environment, and then we we're just talking about sanitation. And now we're talking about uh, I wanted to group in rodents, including uh, dead rodents as well as dead animals that they that you find around. Uh, you know how that can play a role in in um, infecting your farm. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I mean, first of all, I, I have to jump in and say this is probably not one of the fun topics that you've gotten to talk about on your show. <laughs> <laughs> it's informative, Ann. It's I informative, know. Okay. And that's what we're, that's what we're here about. Yeah, it's kind of a. I'm not a comedian. Topic. Okay. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, rodents. Well, so um, a lot of the work on salmonella in the years past, on salmonella SE, salmonella enteritidis, on big farms, is a real um, scary thing, not something anybody wants to have show up. It turns out that rodents carry it in their GI tract. And so oftentimes when farms have had problems with it, then um, one of the key elements to getting rid of it is to make sure they have excellent rodent control. And, uh, you know, while rodents are just part of the ecology of a farm, they can be um, 
they can be encouraged or discouraged uh, by how you handle feed storage, how, for instance, if, if there are if there are chickens, you know, kind of how your feeders are constructed. And, of course, you always have the option of um, putting out rodent traps and that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's really a good idea to, um, to just discourage them from being in your animal's um, environment by really having the feed less than readily available for them. You're not going to eliminate them. Right, you're not going to lim- you're not going to get rid of them. You just want to no, reduce them. No, no, they they're here. You know, they're here to stay. They're intelligent animals, and they you know they know where to find what they need to stay alive. And they're good at making new ones too. They are. Yeah, they're really good at that. Like every every three weeks. Like uh, yeah, really. Yeah. I know. I used to have pet rats as a child, and I I loved them. They were they they're, were they're really wonderful cool. pets. They're wonderful yeah. pets. Oh, they're wonderful pets. Yeah, but um, but. Even I shriek if I see one out in the wild. <laughs> it's different. If it runs over your foot or something, yeah. it's like, oh, that is different. Um, now, do you, do you, um, what do you think about cats as a rodent control? Well, you know, um, a good, an adult, well-vaccinated, spayed or neutered barn thank, cat. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, <laughs> is a darn good thing. Um, so one of the reasons that we worry so much about cats in the barn is because of a protozoan parasite that the cats carry, and most of you may have already heard of this, but it's called toxoplasmosis. And um, young cats often carry this in their gastrointestinal tract, and they shed it in their manure. Um, so cats, I, I, well, I know years ago when I was a lot younger, I was living on farms, and um, I one of the farms was this wonderful place, we had a huge old barn, and we had this marvelous old little cat named Sammy, who was very reliably having litters of kittens every so many months. You know, and um, and I thought it was charming, but that, you know, I was young and dumb. Yeah. Um, so uh, so anyway, if you have a dominant cat in the barn, it's going to help you with the rodent problems. And if it's an adult cat, it's not going to be shedding toxoplasmosis. And if it's spayed or neutered, it's not going to be producing little kittens that are going to get, you know, hidden away in the barn somewhere and produce lots of toxoplasmosis. Right. Um, so, yeah, I do. I do think that cats can be a help, especially in, like, you know, a a more natural environment sort of farm. So the kind of farm that's going to have a wood, you know, a lot of wood in the barn, and you know, it's a complex ecology, and and cats do a a good a good job. Dogs are helpful too. Um, in what and way? They are helpful both in terms of rodents, and you know there are lots of breeds of dogs that were actually derived to chase and kill rodents. Oh, rat terriers, you bet. Uh, and uh, dachshunds, and, yeah, and Jack Russells. Jack oh, my Russells. Goodness. Oh yeah. Yeah, they also chase, chase livestock pretty effectively. Actually, they're better uh, out there than in your living room sometimes. Yeah. Jack Russell's going to be quite <laughs> quite energetic. Yeah, yeah, a real challenge. Yeah. Um, but uh, but also they can chase um, away other like um, other predators or yeah keep them away and yeah um, or just create a a smell atmosphere that is going to be a little off putting to a lot of the other predators. Oh, good point. Very and good point. and and one of those and I think I can I can talk later if there's time, but I, we may run out of time. I realize that, but. We were going to talk a little bit about wildlife and biosecurity. Yes, yes, I wanted, I wanted to actually get to that. Well, I'll bring in something kind of around that, and that let's, is... Let's do that. 
white-tailed deer, um, beautiful animals, really charming, and they do pretty well in a lot of areas of Maine, although not all areas. Um, but they can carry um, a parasite called uh, brainworm, or it's also called uh, Paralaphostrongeus tenuous, or meningeal worm. And it's actually not uncommon uh, for white-tailed deer to carry that. They can carry it, and they're also what we call the definitive host, and that means that the worm can reproduce successfully in white-tailed deer without killing the deer. So kind of like salmonella in chickens, um, white-tailed deer can carry this worm without having any problems, and they often do, and they can spread it. So this worm gets out of the deer by uh, by means of the fecal material of the deer. So the deer droppings may be carrying this larvae, larval form of the worm, and then the worm has to infect snails or slugs on the on the pasture or in the woods. And those snails and slugs harbor the worm until it becomes infective to other animals, including white-tailed deer. That's, um, how, that's how the cycle completes. The deer eat the slugs. Yeah. And yeah. then and it just goes through that that's the that's the normal cycle of that parasite. Right, but right. The, or the or another animal eats the, the and, slug. And that's and, where the problem is. And that's where the problem is. So um and that problem can occur <laughs> in moose uh and and it can occur in uh sheep and goats, um, pretty well documented there, and rarely in other creatures as well. But it's it's something that um, I have a, a graduate student right now, Rachel White, who's very interested in this topic and is doing some. Well, actually, we have a little team of of people here in my lab that are that are working on this project. But one of the things that we're interested in is trying to help farmers avoid this problem, figuring out what the risk factors are or the or the things you could manipulate to keep it from happening. A prevention sort of thing. Right. Exactly. So we're. What we're, have you come up with so far? Well, we we we're, we're playing around with some novel ideas, um, and so we don't we don't really have a full set of recommendations yet. Um, but obviously, you know, things that you can do to reduce snails on your pasture might be helpful. And uh, so we're looking at that a little bit critically. Um, it may or may not make a difference to try to control snails on your pasture. And we would not recommend that people go nuts trying to kill all the snails on their pasture because the snails fill a niche as well, ecologically. Um, but it, it goes without saying that, you know, while white-tailed deer are beautiful, they, they probably aren't doing our agricultural settings any good. So, so, so when some of these uh, domestic livestock get the worm, it get the the larvae get into the brain and show neurological signs, right? In, I'm sorry, you're, you're saying <clears throat> if that... The, if the worm gets into a sheep... Yeah. Or, or what's it, goats, I guess you said? Get yeah, it? sheep or goats or llamas or alpacas. You, you'll, or, see, you'll see neurological Well, signs. you'll see... You should, uh, what you should see first um, is odd gates, lameness, partial paralysis, or weakness of the hindquarters and then ascending neurological signs. But it, there is no real uh, clear, um, uh, reliable and repeatable way that this presents every time. Um, so it, looked like, it could look like rabies. 
it, it, that's what I really don't like about this, <laughs> is that it could, it looks like rabies, or it can look like listeriosis, mm-hmm. um, and uh, both of those are scary things as far as people are concerned. Um, and uh, you know, there are a couple other diseases, including you know just the encephalitis viruses that we worry about, Tripoli e and West Nile. It can kind of look like those as well. So it's the, you know. It's not great. <laughs> We'd like to, and, and there has been some, uh, there's been some progress made on uh, developing an, um, a diagnostic test for it uh, while the animal's still alive. Um, the University of Tennessee has made some uh, strides forward in that area, and uh, so you know a lot of our, a lot of us veterinarians would like to have a test that we could, a blood test that we could run on an animal that's showing some neurologic symptoms so that we could determine whether they are carrying this organism or not. Because there is something you can do about it when um, the, the clinical signs first show up. Um, so veterinarians do treat, you know, occasionally save animals that have this, which is pretty encouraging and wonderful. But, but if we had a test for it, it would be better. So going along this line of thinking in terms of biosecurity, then knowing the warning signs of infectious diseases like in your birds or your sheep or whatever is important to, to have that knowledge as a farmer. You, you know, you're not going to be a veterinarian, but if you see something awry, you know, like uh, diarrhea in your, your poultry or swelling around the eyes or something like that, you should be, owners should be aware of that because that's part, that could be the beginning of something, right? Yeah, and, and that's one thing where um, our lab is, I think, a resource that for farmers that um, I hope people, you know, will be aware of and, and try to use because when you, um, you know, when you have animals that just begin to be off, for instance, and we can do something like um, if, you, if you send us a fecal sample, we can run that for under $15. We can tell you what kind of parasites are being shed by your animal, and that can help you decide if you should use a wormer and which ones, because not all wormers work for all worms, and so you use different products for different kinds of parasites. It also can help you know if you're in trouble and need to call a vet. Um, you may you may be able to come. We may be able to give you some general management ideas and recommendations, or we may be able to come up with some highly specific information about, you know, whether you have a certain bacterial disease, for instance, and which antibiotics would be useful against it. But we rely on you having a vet in your area or with whom you have a what we call a vet-client-patient relationship to actually get drugs that you might need, because sometimes the drugs aren't available over-the-counter increasingly these days, it ends up being a, a, a prescription situation because the FDA is trying to, quite frankly, it's just trying to get people to use fewer antibiotics. Right. That's a big problem. Yeah. That's a big problem. So when does, so who would call the USDA if there's something that is uh, um, dangerous to sure. other flocks? The, is it the vet or the farmer? Or? Absolutely. So there's a, li- if you, if you go to the main.gov website and you, and you, um, type in uh, animal reportable disease, you'll find out that there's a whole list of diseases that we consider dangerous um, and that if any vet 
that becomes aware of one of these diseases in uh, an animal that they're treating needs to let the state vet know. Um, and there's a chain of, of, uh, of reporting that also includes UD, USDA with certain kinds of diseases, of course. So there's, a, there's an ethical responsibility and a, and a license-driven responsibility for vets to do that. So if we find something that's reportable, then the state vet may respond, uh, will respond, um, you know, sometimes just by saying, well, this isn't a great thing, and you know, you, you ought to maybe not, not sell any animals for a little while, let's see how it goes, or, or help you get treatment for it, or in rare cases where it's really a dangerous disease, you might lose your animals, but they will let you know ahead of time and the, and the problem is, if it's that bad a disease, as an owner, you don't want to be the one that's spreading it around. Right. So there are reasons for doing this. It's it's a hard pill to swallow when it's your animals, but sometimes it happens. So let's say you're a farmer and a small farmer, say poultry, and you're doing the isolate. You're really doing well with isolating any new animals or sick animals, your resistance is good, you have vaccines, and your diet is good, environment's good, and you, sanit- you know, sanitize everything. Then a flock of birds, wild birds, comes flying over. Yeah. <laughs> With, I know. So tell, tell the listeners, what could happen to yeah. wild, the wild birds that were a real a vector? Oh, you're absolutely, absolutely right. We do have several diseases in our wild bird population. Actually, here at University of Maine, um, there's a graduate student um, who uh, studies under Pauline came up, and they study diseases at the Wildlife and Livestock Interface, um, and they are studying wild turkeys and diseases in wild turkeys, some of which are diseases that our other domestic birds can get. Um, so salmonellosis, uh, mycoplasma, um, and there are a few others, uh, including some parasites. So um, I, again, keeping that gap between those wild animals and, and your animals is critically important. So what's one way of doing that for birds flying over? Put uh, sure. netting, yeah, well, netting over the top? Or? Yeah, yeah. I use, um, so on my coop, um, I use uh, hardware cloth. And then I um, make sure that there is some kind of a roof over that coop area so that droppings from wild birds don't, you know, don't come in. The wild birds aren't going to come and sit on that hardware cloth and poop. (laughs) Um, But also hardware cloth keeps those small birds out of the feed and water from my birds. Now, obviously, if you're going to sometimes prearrange your birds, let them out in the garden and clean things up, there's going to be some gaps in that. But, you know, this whole thing about biosecurity is about risk reduction. You can't eliminate all risks. You just do the best you can. And prevent so, and minimize risk of, of getting into of your farm thing. and and eliminating or um, reducing risk of transmission to others. That's correct. So how about the is it the avian influenza? Was, yeah. I, I forget about yeah. and that was trans, that was um, carried by wild Birds? Well, that one, yeah, um, yeah, very much. Um, so waterfowl, actually. Um, so uh, these beautiful geese. I just heard today of the first report of somebody seeing migrating geese down in the southern part of the state. Yes, I'm, I'm down in Kittery. I heard them two nights ago. Did you really? Yeah, yeah early morning. Um, yeah. Wow, great. Anyway, they're they're wonderful. But um, but if you have a flock of of you know poultry, um, you you want to 
trying to keep some barriers between those um, migrating waterfowl and your birds. And I mean ducks, too, not just the geese. Um, so, yeah, they're probably the way that avian influenza travels on the landscape and got into a lot of um, commercial flocks in the United States in 2015. Uh, <clears throat> but, frankly, even the little perching birds can carry it. It's just that the migrating waterfowl are thought to be less affected by it. So, right, again, right. like other things, they're silent carriers, um, and you just have to kind of try to keep a gap between them and your animals. It's really important. And their manure, because avian influenza is um, unlike things like the, you know, the coronavirus that we're dealing with now. It's, it's actually stable in the manure for a little while. And yeah. so, you know, one... Oh, they, I think they said that like a gram of, of highly infective manure could kill millions of birds. Oh, my gosh. I know. It's pretty ugly. Jeez. So, you know, again, not to freak out about these things, but, but just using good basic precautions. So any final oh, – we've actually run out of time. Unbelievable. And any final thoughts about telling my listeners about biosecurity in general? Anything you want to add? Or? Well, I just thought – these basic ideas, they extend to everything. We're all worried about things these days, especially infectious diseases in the human environment. And some of these same ideas work. And so, um, you know, you're, you're probably, most diseases are survivable and your immune system is going to kick in and help you being not too stressed, having some gaps between yourself and the sources of infection, good nutrition, all of these things. You know, they, they're just fundamentals, and, and they can help us in lots of different settings, but definitely with our animals. Get back to basics. Nothing, uh, I have to invent the wheel again, right? We, you know, there are all kinds of fancy things that are available. I know there's now they're starting to have some antiviral drugs that they think are going to help with the COVID virus and things like that. That's great. That's fantastic. But those are for special settings. We can do a lot more good by just, you know, being careful, having really good hygiene. I, I bet you 90% of the things I, I diagnose here uh, at our diagnostic lab have their fundamental uh, roots in poor management. Yeah, okay. That's the, that's the message, good management. Yeah. So, Dr. Ann Lechton-Wallner, thank you very much. You're a wonderful guest. Uh, it's been a great hour. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Remember, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug. And a couple of minutes to go before the hour of five o'clock hits us. Let's take a quick look at a precautionary message from the National Weather Service. Winter weather advisory now in effect until seven tonight. Uh, it's about 58 degrees, 38 degrees in Orland, and it's going to go down uh, pretty steadily from now on. So in that case, beware that a winter weather advisory means that periods of snow, sleet, or freezing rain will cause travel difficulties. Expect slippery roads, limited visibilities, and use caution while driving. Latest road conditions are available at newengland511.org. That's newengland 511org Org. You're listening to uh, WERU-FM 89.9 in Blue Hill and streaming at WERU.org.
Welcome to 2020 Talks, where we track the 2020 election process. I know Joe. We know Joe. 